Father, I thank you for today, and I pray that, uh, Lord, those words that we just sang would be true for us. Lord, we would, we want to be yours alone, and we want to live in such a way that shows that the strength that we follow, we use to follow your commands, to obey you, ultimately comes from you. For from you, and through you, and to you are all things. To you, Lord, we ask, be the glory in our gathering, both now and forever. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Exodus, um, again. Exodus chapter 15, verses 22, all the way up to Exodus chapter 18, verse 27. So the end of Exodus 18. Exodus 15. So we're continuing on with the story of the Exodus. They've exited Egypt, and now they're in the desert. A show of hands. How many of you guys have been in a desert before? Like a real desert. Uncle Mal, you've been in a desert? Okay. Brian? Where? Mexico. Okay. All right. Well, I I have never been in a desert. Like a real desert. Okay. Uganda was not really. It it wasn't a desert. (laughs) It was sandy ground at places, but no. So... I, I've never been to a true desert, and yet I've watched a lot of nature documentaries. I've watched enough of them to know some things about deserts. First, right, deserts are hot, really hot, and they don't have a lot of water in them. Uh, they don't have a lot of food in them either. They get really cold at night, actually. So they're hot during the day, really cold at night. And they're not really a place that a lot of people would want to live in. I mean, there are people that live in the desert, but not mass populations chilling in a desert. You just, you don't see that. You could go on and on about deserts, but basically they're, they're rough. Rough places to be. And, and they're so notoriously bad that sometimes we might even say that our life... <coughs> feels like a desert when things are going bad for us. We're going through a bit of a dry spell, a desert spell, where we're discouraged or empty, feeling thirsty for more in life. There's got to be more to life than this. I'm, I'm dry. And it's in those de- desert-type times that our faith is tested to the core. What do we really clinging to for hope and in that time of testing in those desert times our our functional gods that we love to run to for rescue are revealed here's what i mean when life feels like a desert what we turn to for refuge for joy for salvation in that moment becomes our functional God. No matter what we might say, we believe with our lips. Alcohol, pornography, food, tobacco, sugar, sleep, TV and more TV, movies, our smartphones, new toys, fun experiences, anything that we use to try to take the edge off our dryness, our boredom. Those things that fill our midweek lives. Sometimes they may be our real saviors or we struggle with them, turning to them for salvation even though we might say and long to have Jesus be our savior. The struggle to turn to other saviors is our daily battle. It's a struggle with ultimately what we would call, what the Bible would call, idolatry. And the reality is Many of the idols that we turn to in the desert times of our lives, they're not, always, they're not bad things necessarily. But they could even be you know, good, healthy things that, that start to take the place of God in our lives. 
So when everything hits the fan and we just feel ick, we feel discouraged, it's in these desert-like moments that our faith, what we really believe in, is being tested. And it's in those moments that the one true God, the living God of the Bible, is calling for us to cry out to him for refuge, for rescue, to supply us once again with everything that we need for joy, for life, for godliness. The false saviors that we turn to, these functional little idols, even the good ones, will ultimately not be able to bear the weight of our happiness, of our desire for for fulfillment. They'll leave us feeling empty, guilty, and full of shame. But the one true God, he is a fountain in a desert, a fountain of never-failing, soul-satisfying water in the midst of anything that we face. And we'll see that this morning. That's what Exodus, the story, is about. Israel, they've just finished their Sunday morning worship song, right? I don't know if it was Sunday morning, but they just finished their, their worship song in Exodus chapter 15. What are they celebrating? They're not slaves anymore. They're free. They're not slaves. They've, they've tasted the good news of freedom. They're like us when we sing, feeling joy and tasting the good news of God's forgiveness from sins. And yet, as they leave the worship service and they put their instruments away, Exodus 15, verse 22, begins a new chapter. Everything hits the fan. God tests them to see, is their faith really real? Friends, it was the same for Abraham. We learned about back in Genesis chapter 22. God tested him long ago with the sacrifice of Isaac. Is Abraham's faith really real to the point of radical obedience? And it's the same for you and I. The times of testing, they always come for true Christians. They always come. Times of testing, seasons of desert. And in those times, God is calling us to put our trust in him. So this morning, we're going to follow Israel right through their journey in the desert. And we'll see that Israel shows her true colors in the time of testing. She shows her true colors again and again. And the colors, here's a hint, they're pretty dark. As we enter these stories, Israel is leaving Egypt and they're on a journey. Ultimately, they're on a journey to the promised land of Canaan. But more immediately, they're on a journey to a mountain. Who knows what the mountain is? Sinai. Sinai. Listen, here's what you need to know about Sinai. Sinai stands in the middle of this book called the Torah like a huge consuming fire, right? Sinai is right in the middle and everything, it, it kind of sheds light on everything on either side of it. You, you, we'll, we'll see that next week, okay? And in the weeks to come. It's kind of like the turning point in the story. The law comes down, what's Israel going to do with it? But Israel's headed there. They're headed there to meet God. And God's waiting for them. He said that back in Exodus chapter 3. He's waiting I'll be here when you get. Well, I'll I'll be here when you get here, right? And and he's he's going to meet them there, and he's he's going to give them his law. He's going to establish his covenant relationship with them as a nation. So they're on that journey to Sinai, and as they leave Egypt, we're going to see three things here. First, in chapter fifteen, verse twenty-two, all the way up to chapter seventeen, verse seven. We're going to look at what I'm calling a grumble sandwich. A grumble. You ever grumbled about a sandwich? Oh, they put too much mustard on or something, whatever. Okay, this is a grumble sandwich, all right? And if you're like, what? Stay tuned. I'll explain what I mean in a minute. Second, we're going to circle around to each grumbling instance, and we're going to show, we're going to focus for a minute on the theme of Testing. So first we're going to look at the grumble sandwich, these three different instances of grumbling. Then we're going to circle around in the second point and look at this, this theme of testing in each one. And then the third thing that we're going to do near the end is we're going to look at the fact that 
Israel is too heavy of a burden for Moses to bury, um, bear alone. Leading Israel is too heavy for Moses. So first, the grumble sandwich. Now, um, to, to understand why I'm calling this a grumble sandwich, you only need to look at the headings in your Bible. Um, in chapter 15, verse 22 to 27, they grumble about water. In chapter 16, they grumble that they don't have food. And back in chapter 17, verses 1 to 7, they're back to the water thing again. Do you see that? Grumble about water, grumble about food, grumble about water. Water is kind of like the bread of the sandwich and the, the, the food grumbling is in the middle. It's the meat. Right? Now, we don't have meat. So uh, the grumble sandwich. Now, let's look at the first grumble in our grumble sandwich. The grumbling about water in verses 22 to 27. I'm going to read it and make some comments as we go along. Starting in verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it is named Marah. In other words, the word Marah means bitter. Um, bitterness. The water probably had some sort of strong uh, mineral content. Uh, that made it like pungent to drink. I don't know. That, that's people's guesses. So it, w- it was undrinkable. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute how frustrating that must have been for the Israelites, right? No, they, they've been dra- traveling in the desert for three days. When you're really hot and you've just finished a race, what are you thinking about? Water. They're sweating. They're thinking about water. If we can just get to this place, we know that there's a spring there. There's, there's going to be water. It wasn't called Mara at that time. They called it, it became called Mara, you know, it got called Mara after they discovered the water there was bitter. So they're trying to get there for, for, for what they think is going to be good water. And finally they get there and there's a huge letdown. The water was terrible. It was undrinkable. And so the people grumble. They grumble at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Notice they don't turn to the Lord here. They don't pray and ask him to help them. Like, you just saved us out of Egypt. Maybe you could give us a little water. We just saw you do amazing things, Lord. No, they grumble. And they don't even call out to the Lord. They grumble at Moses because they can see him. They can't see the Lord. He's just in this cloud that's leading them, this amazing cloud. No, they, they, they yell at Moses and, and Moses turns to the Lord. And he cries out to the Lord, to Yahweh. And Yahweh showed him, or more literally, he instructed him um, to take a tree and throw it in the waters. And the waters became sweet. Now, the, the, the point here is that the instruction of the Lord turns the bitter waters to sweet. God's instruction, God's law, brings life in the desert. That helps us make sense of what comes next in verse 25. There he made for them a statute and a a regulation or a rule. And there he tested them. God tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of Yahweh your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes. So if you obey his law... You saw what happened. Moses followed God's instruction and water brings life. If you follow God's instruction, it will bring life. And God says, then I will, not, I will put none of the de- diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. What were those diseases? The, the plagues that we read about. So if you heed God's word, then you won't get plagues like Egypt. Why did Egypt get plagues? Because they did not listen to the word of the Lord. Pharaoh did what was right in his own sight, not in the Lord's sight. So again, if Israel wants to avoid plagues and suffering, they must hear God's voice. And now we come to the middle part of the sandwich, grumbling about food. Chapter 16. I'm not going to read this whole chapter because of time, but I'll just summarize the story as we go through it. 
Look at verse 3, if you would. The sons of Israel said to them, to Moses and Aaron, Would that we had died by Yahweh's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Remember what we said about deserts? Not, food's not really a natural resource that grows in deserts. Okay, Rocks, sand, maybe some cactuses, but not a lot of food. And you've got probably about 2 million Israelites who left Egypt following Moses. And, and there's not like grocery stores along the way either. Okay, like where are they going to get food? Historians that aren't following Christians, believing the Bible, will actually say the Exodus is impossible because there would be no way for the land to sustain a population of that size. I know. Read the Bible. <laughs> the Bible knows that too, right? That's why God has to... They're saying we're hungry. Why? Because the land can't sustain a population of 2 million people. There's no food. And so, they're mad. They're grumbling. They complain. They're like little children grumbling about food. I don't know if that happens in your house. Or growing up, if that happened in your house. It happens in my house all the time. And they're so upset... The Israelites, that they tell Moses they wish they had died under the plagues back in Egypt, then slowly starve to death in the desert. In other words, Moses, if this is what salvation is like, if this is freedom, we'd rather be dead. We'd rather be slaves. But they want meat and they want bread. Ultimately, they want to go back to the comforts of slavery. They've forgotten how horrible slavery was. And friends, that's really the story of the Christian life. Um, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. We've been set free by Jesus from slavery to sin, to rebellion against God. And, And we're now called by God to live each day by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. But then suffering and temptation hit. And we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to slavery. To the same sins we enjoyed before Christ. Sins, at least I got some joy out of those, we think. Sins that promise security and happiness and rest. And yet, they can never ultimately deliver what they promise. And yet, it's so easy to forget that. Suffering has a tendency to make sin look attractive. Even though it only leads to slavery. In the end, that's why suffering, that's why the desert is a test. Who will we turn to? And yet God is so merciful to Israel here. In Exodus 16, he actually gives them meat and bread. First, look at verses 4 to 12. There God outlines what he's about to do and why. I'm going to read these verses here, verses 4 to 7. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know what the Lord has brought you. You will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? All right, so notice a few things here. First, God's going to meet his people's needs. Bread is going to come. Meat is coming as well. But God wants them to gather the food his way. In verse 4, he gives the people a very specific instruction. Remember what the common theme here? God's instruction brings life, brings blessing. God's law is the way to go. And so God gives them instruction. Only gather enough bread for each day. Don't stockpile it. It's a test. Are they going to obey his instruction or not? And as we'll see in a little bit, God's testing them for faith, right? Do they really trust him? I'm going to circle around back to that near uh, in, in the point two of this message. 
when we look at testing. God also tells them in verse 5 that on Fridays, they're to gather enough food for Saturday, for the Sabbath, so that they don't have to go out and gather food on Saturday. They rest on the Sabbath, trusting God to provide. And so the question is, will they follow God's instructions or not? God's like a father who, who has given his three-year-old food and, and looks at his three-year-old's plate and says... Here's some specific instructions. I want you to eat your vegetables and your meat first. And then you can eat your cornbread. How does that that conversation ever happen? Have you heard a conversation like that before? Eat your veggies first. And we got to trust. The kid, the child has to trust and obey that the parent has the best in his best interests in mind. But do the Israelites obey? Do they trust? No, and we'll see that in a second. But first, look at verses 8 to 12. In these verses, all the people are supposed to gather together before the Lord's presence. Moses says, Come near before the Lord. Why? For he has heard your grumblings. It's personal. Although the people have been grumbling against Moses, the reality is that they've been grumbling against God. Have you ever grumbled? Complained? I know I do. I struggle with that. About my circumstances. I might not even verbalize it, but just in my mind. About the weather. We were talking about that earlier. About food. About how I feel. About... So many things we grumble. And the reality is all our grumbling is ultimately grumbling against God. All our grumbling, ultimately what it says to God is, listen here, God, if I was in charge of the world, things would be a bit different down here. Grumbling is serious business. Grumbling is basically human unbelief put to music, whiny music. And sadly, this is our favorite kind of music to listen to and play when we're in deserts. Grumbly music. What do we need in the moments we're tempted to press the grumble button on the CD player, right? What, what do we need? We need to see God. We grumble because we've lost sight of who God is and what he's done for us. And so Israel grumbled ultimately because they lost sight of their Savior and their salvation. So what does God do? Verse 10, Moses says basically, you grumbled about God, now get ready to see him. And so they all assemble and they look out into the wilderness to where the cloud representing the glory of the Lord is. And they see, verse 10, they see the glory of Yahweh appear in the cloud. I don't know what that would have looked like. It's just a guess. But it must have been awesome. This glory cloud shining, lighting up the desert as the sun sets. God's presence floods the darkness with light. Perspective here. The God of glory is on his throne, Israel. You are not. And then the Lord speaks to Moses and he gives him some words for the people. At twilight, you're going to eat meat. In the morning, you'll be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. Why does he say that? Because they've forgotten. They've forgotten the Lord in suffering. And in the verses to follow, God does just that. In verses 13 to 14, we read that first, a a huge flock of quail that were migrating their way through the desert decided to take a pit stop right on the Israelite camp. Boosh! Meat for everybody! The quail must have been so tired, all you had to do was grab them and put them in the pot. God provided The meat pots are filled. Then in the morning, when the dew melted, it left behind bread all over the desert surrounding the camp of Israel. Nobody knew what it was. We still don't really know what it was today. It's something we've never seen before. And that's what the Israelites said. They went out and they said, Mana, what is it? 
And so it was called manna. It's a miracle. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul calls it spiritual food. Spiritual food. Food from God himself. But as soon as the sun rose and started cooking it, it would melt. Now remember, God has given them specific instructions, law, about how to collect it. Only collect enough for each day. No leftovers, except on the day before the Sabbath. On that day, they were to collect just enough for, the, for that day and the day that they were supposed to rest. But, as I alluded to earlier, the people did not listen to this instruction. Literally, verse 4, they didn't listen to this law. Instead, they stuffed their tents full of stuff. Right? Full of manna. Their tents are bursting at the seams of manna. And in the morning, all this extra manna was filled with worms and stunk. And then, as you look down at verse 27, they broke the Sabbath law too. Some people, I guess it wasn't all of them, but they went out to gather on the Sabbath day. And they didn't find any. God didn't send the manna on that day. What was God's response in verse 28? Look at that. How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? Literally, my law. Things are not boding well for Israel. They keep failing the desert tests. And remember, they're heading to Sinai to get God's law. Formally. What do you think is going to happen after they get it? Well, if this track record says anything, it's not going to be good. And yet, God continues to provide for them, despite their disobedience. That's amazing. Look down at chapter 16, verse 35. The sons of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. In other words, God's miraculous provision lasted all the way until Israel got to the promised land. Now we're to the third part of the grumble sandwich. They grumble about water again. Chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. I'll read this whole section for us now. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin. Nothing, the wilderness of sin has nothing to do with the, you know, the English word sin, but I do think it is kind of humorous, because what they do in the desert of sin, <laughs> they sinned. Um, anyway, maybe you don't find that funny, but I've always chuckled. And according to the command of Yahweh, they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So here's a bit of a deja vu moment, right? No more water. So what's going to happen? Are they going to remember how God provided for them in the past? Well, let's keep reading. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Now, the word for quarrel here is actually an important word in this story. And it actually has not showed up till now. So before, when they were talking about grumbling, it was a different word. Um, I don't do this often, but the Hebrew word for quarreling is the word reeve. Reeve. Which means dispute. It's like a, kind of like a legal word used in a courtroom. Like you bring your, your dispute to the judge. Like I have a dispute against this person. It shows up all throughout the rest of the Torah where people bring a dispute or a judgment against their neighbor or against somebody. People bringing a dispute. So here, here's this reeve, this judgment. They're, they're bringing a legal charge against Moses here. And in verse 2, Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why are you judging me? Why do you test the Lord? Remember, God's been testing Israel in our story. And we'll hone on in on that theme of testing in just a minute. But here Israel is testing God. And though they bring their dispute to Moses, their charge, they're ultimately bringing a reeve, a judgment against Yahweh. This is really serious stuff. The people are standing in judgment over the Lord. And yet that's the essence of grumbling, friends. It's saying, God, I've got a problem with how you're ruling the world in my life. Move over and give me the wheel. Let me drive. I want to live life my way. I want things to go my way. We've got to reeve against the Lord, a judgment. And this is exactly what's happening. And so in verse 
3, we read that the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and they said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? That was the judgment. You're trying to kill us, not save us. So Moses cried out to Yahweh saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. Pay careful attention here if you would. The people are bringing a judgment against Moses. They're furious with him. They've judged him guilty of bringing them out to the wilderness to die and they're getting ready to kill him. There's rumblings in the camp. He sees people hiding stones behind their back whenever they're around him. They're going to stone me. They're trying to kill their leader, their savior. Does that ring any bells? They never did kill Moses, but they killed their real Savior, Jesus, years later on the cross. But the reality is, it's not Moses who they should be mad at here. Moses is just the mediator. He's the go-between. He's leading the Exodus, yes, but he is not the Lord. The people really are judging the Lord. He's the one they're ultimately bringing judgment against. They're really wanting God dead here. And in what follows, Moses, the representative of the, people, of the people, he acts out this shocking desire of Israel in a dramatic display of judgment. Look at verse 5. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Again, pay attention to this, what's going on here. Moses is to go out in front of the people and take some of the leaders with him. They're representing the people of Israel here. The people, who remember, are bringing a reeve ultimately against God. They're bringing a judgment against God. So Moses is to take his staff with him. What staff is this? This is the staff of judgment. The staff that brought God's judgment down upon Egypt again and again. The staff that he struck the Nile with and turned the Nile to blood. That staff is now in Moses' hands. And then God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Remember, Horeb is Mount Sinai. So they're finally come right to the base of Mount Sinai. And he's going to, I'm going to stand on the rock. And you shall strike the rock. And water will come out of it that the people may drink. Do you hear the significance of what's going on here? God stands on the rock. What does that look like? I don't know. Perhaps the glory cloud hovers over the rock, symbolizing that God is on this rock. And Moses strikes the rock with the staff of God's own judgment. The people are judging God. And Moses, their representative, acts out what they're ultimately trying to do. They want God dead. Get us a different God. We don't like this Yahweh. We have a reeve, a judgment against him. And God dramatically acts it out, what they really want. And yet, what happens when they strike God? Water flows out of the rock bringing life to the people. By standing on that rock, Yahweh, God himself, he identifies with the rock that's struck. Just as we learned a couple weeks ago, just like Yahweh had identified himself with the Passover lamb, protecting the people from his own judgment, God identifies with the rock. Now later on, near the end of the Torah, this five-part book, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, the same word for rock is used to describe Yahweh seven, seven different times. I'll just read one of them. Deuteronomy 32 verse 15. Moses says to Israel, they abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their savior. The rock is the savior of Israel. And how does the rock save them here in the desert? The rock saves them by being struck. The story is so significant here that the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the Israelites drank from the rock and the rock was Christ. 
Jesus Christ is Yahweh, and he alone is the rock of our salvation. The rock pointed to Yahweh, who saves by being struck. On the cross, Jesus would be struck as God in our place, taking our judgment that we might live through him. Now, there's a lot more that we could say, but we need to move on. Look at verse 7, if you would, of Exodus 17. Moses did so. He, he struck the rock in, in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massa, Massa or Massa, and Meribah. Your, your Bible might say Meribah. It's, it's a V sound. Meribah. You hear the word reeve in there? It's basically the place of judgment, the place of testing, because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? God had sworn that he would be with them, but they didn't believe it. Their judgment against the Lord was that he'd abandoned them. And they were so furious that they wanted God's representative dead, stoned. But ultimately, they were rejecting the Lord. They're testing the Lord. Are you really with us, God? Then prove it, because we don't believe it. And God, in his great mercy here, he does prove He's with them. He provides water for them in the desert. Even in their rebellion, his mercy overflows. Think about the many times that you have grumbled. Taking grumbling, all the while we take deep breaths of air that God has given us. Breaths of air that we did not make. We are drowning in mercy and that's what we see here. And we come to the second main point of the message this morning. In all three sections of the grumble sandwich, we see that God is testing Israel. He's testing them to see, are you going to listen to my voice? Are you going to obey my instruction? He's testing them to see if their faith is real. And three times in a row, what have we seen? They got an F on the test. They failed. They're unbelieving. They're no different than the Egyptians. Back in 15, they grumbled about water. Back in 16, God's provision of manna came with special instructions about how the Israelites were to gather it. We already kind of alluded to it, but those instructions were themselves a test would Israel obey God's word? Would they trust him? Ultimately, the way that they were gathering manna, they were supposed to gather manna, forced them to trust God. Think about it. They were only allowed to gather what they needed for that day. They would have to trust God to provide for the next day. They wouldn't be able to trust what they'd stored in the tent. It wouldn't be available. And then on the Sabbath, they had to trust that God would actually provide enough for them to eat on the Sabbath. God's law required faith in God to obey. And yet Israel didn't have that faith. They did not believe. They were hoarders. And friends, I know we can be the same way. Holding on to more and more stuff. Afraid to let stuff go. Afraid to give away what we have now. Because deep down, we're terrified that we won't have what we need to make us happy tomorrow or some point down the road. Hoarding is actually becoming more and more of a problem in America. And there's even a TV show about it. Who's watched the TV show Hoarders? Okay? It's, it, this is a huge. We are the most wealthy country on the planet. We have the most resources, the most stuff. And we want more, more, more. There's a TV show. But we're all tempted to hold on to our stuff and get more stuff and stockpile resources, just like Israel. And here's what we ultimately need to see. At the very core, there's unbelief there. When we hoard, we're like the Israelites, stuffing our tents full of as much manna as we can because we're not sure that God's going to give us what we need to be happy and to live the good life tomorrow. And the tragic reality is the stuff we hoard... Only gets worms in the end. Not only can we not take it with us when we die, but it ends up collecting more and more dust and getting broken and lost. Our children will sometimes look at it like I think of guys that have deer heads all over the wall, right? I'm a big hunter. Like 
50 deer heads on the wall. So I was like, what are your kids going to do with that someday? It's like, there's only so many things that you can put on your wall. They could just, it's going to be a dumpster bill. Right? Oh, that we would learn to pray like Jesus taught us. Give us this day our daily bread. It comes right from the manna story. Now let's look briefly at the final test here. In verses 1 to 7, once again, we see, of chapter 17, we see that God puts the people in a situation where they have no water and they fail the test. Ultimately, they point their guns at God. And although Moses is the leader of Israel, we see in this story, he is not their God. He can't save them. And he ultimately is unable to bear the weight of this rebellious people. They're too heavy for him. And that's the point in the third story, the the third point this morning. Israel is too heavy for Moses to bear. Moses has been called to lead a people who again and again quarrel with him. They even want him dead. The people are quite literally too much for him to carry. To bear. They're too heavy. And Moses has actually put the next two stories strategically placed to show this exact same point as he's writing down this record. He shows there's two stories where the word heavy shows up. In the first one, in Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16, Israel gets attacked by the tribe of Amalek. Now, I'm not going to read these verses for us, but basically, Joshua. The, the general of the army goes out with a group of Israelite men to fight against the enemies. And although Moses doesn't go out with Joshua, he goes up onto a hill overlooking the battle and he holds the staff of God out over the battle with his arm. And when he's able to keep it up, Israel is having victory. And when he lets it down, Israel starts to lose. And so his, their victory is tied to how if he's able to hold that staff up and it gets too heavy for him. He can't bear the burden of it. Now, like in Moses' defense, I don't know how long I'd last holding a, holding a staff out, but this is just a picture of the people here. They're, they're too heavy for Moses to bear. What does he need? Help. Aaron and her help him hold up his arms. And that way, he's able to hold this staff that symbolizes God's power and God's judgment over the enemies, and they have victory. Aaron and her help. Moses needs help. He can't bear the weight alone. And we see that this is the point of this story because of what comes next. In Exodus 18, again, just summarizing, Moses gets a visit from one of our favorite Bible names, Jethro. His father-in-law. And he comes bringing Moses' wife and kids. Now there's all kinds of speculation about how Moses' wife Zipporah and his two kids got to be with Jethro. Um, we don't know. At some point, Zipporah went home to her dad. Maybe to be safe while Moses led this crazy people through the wilderness. I don't know. We don't know. It's just speculation. But Jethro comes and he sees what Moses... First he sees what God has done. And, and in verses 9 to 11, he's just like, wow. God, Yahweh is amazing what he's done. I mean, this must have been pretty amazing for Jethro. Looking at like 2 million people in a desert eating manna, and they've just come out of slavery to the most mighty nation in the world who are now decimated. Like, this is amazing for the pagan Jethro. He's not an Israelite, and he's, 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 his mind is blown He rejoices to hear what God's done. And he celebrates saying, now I know that there's like no other God but Yahweh. Like All the other gods are nothing compared to the Lord. And then he gives Moses some advice. He sees that Moses has a problem. The people are coming to Moses day and night with their issues. Lots and lots of issues. Why? Because they're a law-breaking, rebellious people. And they have tons of problems. And they keep coming to Moses with all their problems saying, Oh, judge for us. We we're fight- they're fighting. They've got all these issues. And Moses, all by himself, is trying to be like the judge for this massive nation. It's too much for him to bear, said Jethro, Jethro in verse 22. It's too heavy. You need Help. Verse 18 is where the word heavy shows up. The task is too heavy 
And so what happens? He appoints men in Israel to help. Leaders who are to help with the small cases and the big ones will come before Moses. Now, in a, in a few months, we're going to see this again, this theme of heaviness when we get to the book of Numbers. And there in Numbers, we're going to see this help, these people, didn't end up helping in the long run. The Israelites, after the law came, were still too heavy for Moses. In, there in, in Numbers chapter 11, though, we will see in a few months what the ultimate solution to Israel's big problem of heaviness and hard-heartedness is. It's the Holy Spirit of God. God's Spirit is ultimately the only one who can help the hard-hearted Israelites who have a terrible time obeying God's law. So just maybe if you can, we've covered a lot of ground, but make a mental note of that. All this, oh, they're too heavy for me. Oh, we'll give them some help two times. We're going to see this exact same thing on the other side of that big mountain, Sinai. And we'll see the help didn't help. They need more. They need the Spirit. They need the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, only God's Spirit, only God can bear the burden of His people's law-breaking and sin. Only God can save Israel from themselves. And one day, He would come in the flesh to do just that. In John chapter 6, Jesus does what God did many years before in the desert. He miraculously feeds thousands of Israelites in the wilderness with bread. Then, Jesus tells people that that's just a picture. He himself is the bread from heaven. Listen to these words from John 6, verse 31 to 37. The Israelites say to Jesus this. They say, Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They're like, wow, that sounds like some good bread. Where can we get that? Sir, give us this, always this bread. Verse 35 of John 6, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Friends, Israel saw the manna in the desert and they still refused to believe or to trust in the giver of manna. And so the giver of manna himself came as a man offering himself to us in the person of Jesus. And the question is, do we believe? Do we really believe that Jesus is the bread of life? That to know Jesus is to live. Whoever believes in Jesus will never hunger spiritually. He satisfies our souls forever. No matter what desert we find ourselves in, we are heading to a new creation of rest if we know the bread of life. And he offers us living water As well, Jesus is Yahweh himself. He is our rock. And as our rock, Jesus offers us living water. Brian and I were talking about this. We have no way of going into it. But in Isaiah 8, Jesus is called a rock for striking. Hmm. Same word as Exodus. Jesus, a rock for striking that causes many to stumble. He brings us living water. In John 7, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Friends, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of thirsts in my life from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed. And I live in a thirsty world. We're all longing, thirsting for so many things. If you dig up everything that you do during a day or think, you'll find your longings clinging to the roots of what you do, what you think, what you say. 
We long for comfort. So we avoid things that make us uncomfortable. We, even things that we should do, right? We long to be noticed and appreciated and loved and respected, to be seen. So we talk about ourselves, at least I do sometimes, to try to draw attention, to try to feel better about myself. We thirst for meaning. And we try to find it in a whole boatload of things, from collecting more and more stuff to working really hard. We long for happiness, and we milk the stuff around us for all it's worth, trying to get some joy out of it. We could go on and on, but the point is we live in a thirsty world. And Jesus promises that he alone can satisfy our thirsts, our thirsty hearts forever. Knowing Jesus, the fountain of living water, that is what we were made for. He is the bread of life. He is the fountain. He alone can satisfy both now and forever. And ultimately, he alone can satisfy beyond the grave in the new creation. Why can he do that? Because he's God. He's our maker. He's the fountain of all good things. And ultimately, Jesus is the rock who was struck in our place for all our sin. On the cross, Jesus, the new and greatest, the new and greater Moses, the savior that Moses only pointed to, Jesus took the judgment of God that should have fallen on us for our rebellion. And Jesus took it on himself, standing in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. And yet Jesus, he's not just a a new Moses. Jesus is God himself in our place. Come for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our Savior, for Jesus. Lord, we've covered a lot of ground in this passage. I just pray that you would be for us water of life in a desert. Lord, that in all our thirsts, we would look to you ultimately to satisfy. And in all the things that we get joy in, all the good things in this life, Father, I pray that They would be for us like beams of the sun, leading us back to the source of all joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.